Welcome back to the Relatively Damaged Podcast by Damaged Parents, where injured, fun, vulnerable people come to learn maybe, just maybe, we're all a little bit damaged. Someone once told me it's safe to assume 50% of the people I meet are struggling and feel wounded in some way. I would venture to say it's closer to 100%. Every one of us is either currently struggling or has struggled with something that made us feel less than. Like we aren't good enough. We aren't capable. We are relatively damaged and that's what we're here to talk about. In my ongoing investigation of the damaged self, I want to better understand how others view their own challenges. Maybe it's not so much about the damage. Maybe it's about our perception and how we deal with it. There is a deep commitment to becoming who we are meant to be. How do you do that? How do you find balance after a damaging experience? My hero is the damaged person, the one who faces seemingly insurmountable odds to come out on the other side whole. Those who stare directly into the face of adversity with unyielding persistence to discover their purpose. These are the people who inspire me to be more fully me. Not in spite of my trials, but because of them. Let's hear from another hero. Today's topic includes sensitive material which may not be appropriate for children. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as advice. The opinions expressed here were strictly those of the person who gave them. Today we're going to talk with Nick Demos. He has many roles in his life, teacher, artist, mentor, friend, husband, creator, coach, and more. We'll talk about how he found himself in an abusive relationship with a significantly older man and then thought he might have AIDS and how he found health and healing. Let's talk. Welcome back to Relatively Damaged by Damaged Parents. Today, we have Nick Demas. He is a Tony Award-winning producer, documentary filmmaker, and personal brand business coach. He's got over 15 years of teaching breathwork and creativity, as well as 30 years in the entertainment industry. He's traveled from the Tony Awards to ashrams and run a multi-million dollar business in between. You can find him at thenickdemos.com. He's also on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook with the same tag at the Nick Demos. Thank you for coming here today. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah. In fact, I had been checking out your website and I think I decided that you were, I'm going to see if I say this right again, because we were talking about a little bit beforehand, Bodhisattva. You're right on. Well done. (sighs) Yes. And that is a warrior of the heart, right? Yeah. Warrior of the heart. I mean, that's a loose translation, but yeah, that is. And I was shocked when you said that, because I think shocked is maybe not the right word, but I was um, excited that you said that, because I think that that's sort of my mission in life is to be a warrior of the heart. Yeah. And how do you, I mean, because I know you're here to talk about a struggle and we will get to that. How does being a warrior of the heart show up and what does that mean? Well, I think it's actually directly related to my struggle because I overcame so much. I think that it asked me, called of me to open myself up, open my heart to others. Uh, A warrior of the heart is a way of being. It's a way of walking in the world with compassion and kindness for others, but also for the self. It begins with the self. And if you can cultivate that compassion and that 
open-heartedness and acceptance really of who you are. The self-actualization process is the process of letting go of who you aren't to be who you actually are. When you can really surrender to your truth, to who you are, you then are able to offer that same open-heartedness to those around you and in many ways shine a light for them so that they can then do it themselves, so that they can lean into their own compassion and their own love of their own self. Yeah. Now, when you were learning to to lean that way, what I'm just going to ask real quick, I've got to know, was it scary? Incredibly scary. It's still scary. Every day it's scary. (laughs) I just had to ask before we get into the journey. (laughs) You know, this is why people often call it a practice, right? We think of maybe a yoga, yoga practice or a meditation practice as sitting down, right? And sitting on a cushion and meditating for 20 minutes or going to the yoga class. But really, this is what we mean by a practice is that every day stepping into your fear, every day coming up against your ish, and sitting in it and allowing yourself to have these feelings and yet still stepping into it, still doing it, even when it's scary, especially when it's scary. When it's scary, it means you are on the the precipice of that breakthrough that it's meant for you. Right, and with that probably comes, you know, confusion and heartache and disappointment sometimes and, you know, all those. (laughs) It's not easy. This is not an easy path, right? But then I ask myself, was it at, was it or is it easier to sit in the pain? You know, sometimes we get comfortable in that. We get so used to it that it becomes normal. But the fact is, is that when you work through it, when you go through that, through the transformation, the alchemy, right? We have to bring fire into, that's when the transformation happens. And on the other side of it, even though it's still scary on a daily basis, it's nowhere near as scary as being in the pain. And in the hurt. So I th- what I heard you say was that sitting in that pain and hurt is not fun. And yet I think sometimes in the warrior's journey, it's walking through that desert where it feels like that is all, and yet there's still something on the other side to get to. So it might feel like that's it. And yet getting to the other side, you find there that, that it's not all there is like, there's this fog there. Yeah. So it's really easy to sit back. I think what you're trying to say, let me see if I'm understanding is that it's really easy to stay in that fear, stay in the pain and suffering and not walk through it. Does that, am I making sense? Yeah. I mean, on one hand it is right. On one hand, it, it it's easier to stay there. And yet it's so much harder once you actually step through it, right. To stay stuck. But we don't realize that when we're in it. We don't realize that actually everything that you desire is on the other side of that pain, of actually feeling it. We avoid everything we can to avoid feeling, right? Right. And staying right. sort of stuck. But the, but what we actually desire is on the other side of that dark night of the soul. So feeling those feelings is really important and walking through them. Correct. And then when it starts to feel maybe weird and awkward... Mm-hmm. It's keep going because Correct. otherwise you're going to stay back here and Correct. sit in it. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's hard, a hard sell. <laughs> oh, it's a very hard sell. It's not for the light of heart, right? It's not a quick fix either. I think we live in a culture we marketed to ultimately a culture of quick fix and quick fix is temporary. It's not lasting and sustaining. 
And so, yes, you may get that quick fix and you'll feel good for a moment, but lasting contentment, because we're not actually looking for happiness. We think we're looking for happiness, but we're not looking for happiness because happiness is fleeting. I can feel happy and sad and angry and pissed off and excited within an hour stretch, right? What we're actually seeking is a contentment within ourselves. And that's that comfort. Yeah. That's something that takes time. It doesn't happen with a quick fix. No, I love that you brought up the quick fix because I see it everywhere in our society with commercials. If you feel this way, just go do this and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Just buy this and everything will be hunky-dory with medical stuff. If you just take this medication, everything will be fine. And at the very end of the conversation, or you might die. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Never mind this list of 50 side effects and you might die. <laughs> right, right. This is the best way. This pill is the best way to fix this. Right. Yeah. So then that mentality, I mean, you made such a great point. How could it not seep into all aspects of our life? And then we wonder why kids are struggling in school and why there's this big mental health challenge. There's, yeah. I mean, because now there's not even any silence. And silence is so important. Daily silence is is important because how do you know who you are if you're just constantly bombarded at the core of of your center, at the heart, that we go back again to the heart, at the heart of, of your being. If you're not connected to that, how do you know who you are? And we keep ourselves surrounded by this distraction of sound. And this is why I think the pandemic was very difficult on people, for many people, because suddenly they weren't going and going and going. Suddenly there wasn't the noise and they actually had to be with themselves in quiet and they didn't know how, didn't know how. And so mental health, a struggle for many because of that. Yeah. Now I had asked you a question before we started recording about characters in plays and things like that. And I can't remember exactly how I asked the question, but what we were talking about is how every single character. It was something about being, recognizing that every single character in a play is also out in this world. And I think you had said something to the effect of that you learned some self-awareness from that. Oh, completely. I mean, every musical, every play, every film that I've worked on, I've had the, it's, it's the study of human psychology, the study of the human spirit. And so I've learned, and there's little bits of each of us in every character, right? We are, if we are all all things, if you look at it in that way, we're the microcosm of a greater macrocosm and the film or the book or the movie or the play or whatever is that little microcosm. And so I've learned from every character about myself. If, if you choose to, you can learn, you, everyone can be your mirror. So you're saying every single character is inside all of us. Correct. There's a part of them. There's a part of us in every character. Now, however morally right or wrong, because that's judgment, there is a part of us because we are all part of the same collective, ultimately. You know how you can meet somebody that you've never met before and you're like, oh, I have so much in common with them. Or you may think, I don't have anything in common with that person. But then if you dig a little bit deeper under the hood, you go, oh, okay, actually we do have X, Y, or Z in common. Oh, I do think like that. Or, oh, hmm, that's interesting. That person challenges me. And if they challenge you, they're really for you, 
right? They're for you to look at something within yourself. Yeah. I think you're going to love, I was challenged with a random reminder app recently. So I, we, the, the idea was set a random reminder and ask yourself, what character am I playing right now? Mm. And I was cracking up within two hours because of course I had set plenty random reminders that what I thought only other people were, was what they would do, that it had no longer been inside of me. And for crying out loud, it was all of it inside of me. So I just started laughing because I'm like, of course it's inside of me. Why would I think any different? (laughs) And, And conversely, we play characters in our own life. There's different parts of us that we show to different people. Yeah. And we don't think about that. Uh-uh. We don't think of it in that those terms. We think we're just, we're, we've been conditioned in many ways to act certain ways in certain situations. And, and so do characters in plays and, and movies. Wow. You know, and I think that was also part of that lesson was I'm also playing that same character, yeah, yeah. And, which is exactly what you pointed out. Okay. We've been slacking off on our task to talk about how you overcame the shame of sexual <laughs> abuse, but I love our conversation. I have a feeling we're going to round back to it. So no worries. Could you share with us what that struggle was like for you? So I was a very sensitive kid. I grew up in first rural Montana and then in a small town in Northern Michigan. We moved when I was 12 and I was a very artistic kid, clearly. I mean, that's sort of and and thoughtful and all of those sensitive. And I found a community theater and in that theater was a solace. It was a, what, what felt like a safe place or space for me as a very, as I said, what felt like very different child. Cause you have to remember this was the 1980s. I was a dancer. I danced ballet and tap and I was really wanting to be an actor. And that just wasn't, that just wasn't done in small town, right? I was to be playing football and I was to be one of the guys, right? And here I was this, like I said, super sensitive kid. And I was basically looking for somebody to accept me. And it came in all the wrong places, in all the wrong places. And now in retrospect, I can look at it and say, oh, you were groomed from the time you were 12 years old. And it, it, over the course of the next several years, I began a sexual relationship with this man who was at the theater. And I have to say, I, at the time, I didn't understand, obviously, I couldn't understand that this was actually abuse. I thought that I was being loved. I thought that I was being seen. Those key things that we all want in this world, to be seen, to be loved, to be heard, And I was receiving that in a very obviously wrong way, (laughs) which I couldn't see at the time. Um, Of course I couldn't. Now it was also in the middle of the AIDS crisis. And I found out that through him, that he had been exposed to HIV. And I was now 16 years old, turning 17, because I remember my 17th birthday. I spent the day in the mirror looking for lesions on my body because a part of me knew that if that showed up, I was going to die. And I also was too scared to tell my parents to get a test. I thought my father would kill him. I really did. You know, well, in back in the eighties, I don't know if teenagers had as much freedom to go to like a clinic or something. We did not. I could not, I could not get a test on my own. I would have had to have had a parent's permission. Right. 
And I didn't feel like I could tell them. And so I felt like I had this sort of ticking time bomb waiting to tell me when I was going to die, basically. Were you terrified? I was beyond terrified. I was scared every day, every day of my life. And I really did used to stand in front of the mirror and and examine every part of my body looking for any sign. Or when I would get a cold, I would flip out a little bit internally, but too afraid to tell anybody. Well, yeah. And in the eighties, it was that they're coming to the schools. They're talking about AIDS and it's very much, it was very scary scary. to even, I mean, it was almost like they were trying to scare us because I'm aging myself, but that's okay. Everybody I think knows scare everyone in that age group into just abstinence period. It wasn't even about safety at that point. Right. And because AIDS equals death, right? That was even a slogan, AIDS equals death. And so that lived, that hung over me. So I had this one, two sort of punch of sexual abuse. And then realizing when this happened, that this could cause my death. And then also during that time, sort of beginning to realize that not only was it wrong, but that I had been taken advantage of. My heart was hurting. Now, thankfully, when I did turn 18, I went and was tested and tested negative. And that was really a profound release of all that fear and all of that that trepidation about what had happened to me. I, 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 I can't even describe how relieving that was. I have a really, in- I think it's an interesting question, but mm-hmm. by living in that fear of I might die and I can't even share that I have this fear and then having that relief, do you think that by having that relief in some ways you were able to be more courageous in achieving goals and things like that? Without a doubt. There's two parts of this. One is that when you're faced with death that young, you become fearless. And second, I had so many secrets that I, between, I realized I was gay during that period, which is why I was seeking companionship with a man, even though it was in all the wrong places. I had a secret that I had been sexually abused and I had a secret that I thought I had AIDS for a couple of years. So between all of that, I not only became fearless because when you face death and you're like, I made it through, you go. But I also began to try to become the best boy in the entire world. I became this overachiever. That was my drug. That was my way of coping was that I wasn't going to let anybody see. I was masking all of this pain and I didn't want anybody to see it. And so I became a crazy overachiever and I ran. I ran as far away as I possibly could. I ran to New York City. I moved to New York at 19 years old with a suitcase, $800. I knew two people and I'd never been there before. Oh, that takes some serious courage if you ask me. And I also had big dreams. I had Broadway dreams, Broadway aspirations. But because, yes, because of that, I was fearless. Now, because of the secrets and the hiding and things like that, is, is that what led to, I mean, you were already in theater a little bit, but did it help give you a deeper understanding? And did you look for that in other people to understand them more because of I, the... I think at the time I was in such denial and in so much shame and still secrecy. All of this happened and I was still holding all of these secrets. And 
I do think that I immediately felt more compassion for people when something would happen to somebody. Who did everyone come talk to? You. Yeah. Yeah. I was everyone's therapist until I realized that I needed therapy myself. <laughs> now they just naturally came in. They were to naturally you, like- coming to me because I wasn't judgmental of anybody. Everyone knew that I would have absolutely no judgment of them because I was so judging my own self for everything that had happened to me, but I could hold the space and, and the compassion for others in a way that I couldn't for myself. Oh, wow. So probably even strangers would walk up to you or you'd be in a weird place and they just would talk to you probably. I'm thinking. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It was uncanny, honestly. You know, I was just like holding that energy obviously out for people to be attracted to. Yeah. But I also was holding out sort of a victim energy. I got mugged in New York twice, once at gunpoint. And I think part of that was I was so vulnerable and so in that space that I was bringing it, drawing it to me in many ways. And that sounds kind of strange and maybe a little woo-woo, but I think what it was is I was just so open, was easily taken advantage of. Gosh, that's interesting. I was just so open. I was easily taken advantage of. And yet here I was, I heard you say I was maybe sending out the vibes of I'm a victim. And yet these people were coming to you and you were supporting them. And all of that seems very, in my mind, um, some cognitive dissidence there, right? Some totally paradox. <laughs> Completely. My entire life was a paradox. Here I was incredibly successful because it happened, my career happened very quickly. I was on national tours. I was dancing at Radio City. I was a backup dancer for Aretha Franklin. Like I had this very seemingly external success and my internal life, I was a mess. I was nervous all the time. I had stomach issues. I uh, was scared all the time. I had anxiety. I was beyond stressed. I love that you're talking about this because when I used to see people on TV or in shows or whatever, even though there was all this, um, what do you want to call it? National Enquirer type stuff about different actors and actresses and things like that. I think everybody's an actor now, right? Yeah. Okay. See, I'm getting my PC on here. Uh, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> and, and showing my age, but that in those, that they were, they couldn't have those challenges because otherwise they wouldn't be there. And that is just simply not true. It's so beyond not true. Like majority of them have as many, if not more challenges than anybody else. Right. That, Part of the reason, and I think this you alluded to this earlier, was that you're able to understand pain when you have it, and you're able to express it through art when you have it, which is why there's this narrative of the tortured artist, because they do have a sensitivity, a, a lot of them, to that type of behavior or those type of situations, because a lot of them have lived it, which is why they have a great wealth. Not all, not all. That's a very big generalization. But yes, there is, there is that. There's a reason there's the, the stereotype of the tortured artist. Right. But I think in, in like acting and filmmaking and things like that, that learning who you are as a character and those roles, like we were talking a little bit about those character, the characters we play in our lives or in our relationships and things like that. But I mean, with that deeper knowledge but you were secretive. Okay. I know I'm not finishing my sentences. <laughs> this took me years to process as well. So <laughs> it 
spiritual therapy and pro- process all of this. So I totally yeah. understand that you're like, oh, but wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. And I think it's great that there's a, I, I'm okay with that. I yeah, am totally well, okay com- with processing on a, a podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, we're complex human beings. Mm-hmm. And my way, the way in which I dealt with it and the way in which I, it manifested in me is totally different than in somebody else. Yeah. You know, my abuser abused two other people to my knowledge. I'm sure there are more, but at least two. And one of them is in prison for passing it on. Mm -hmm. It's a learned behavior, right? And you're, you're taught how to do it. And then a lot of people continue the cycle. And the other became a, a drug addict. And I have often thought, how, how did I make it? How did it manifest like this in me? How did it, how did it become perfectionism? Yeah. And while perfectionism is health, much healthier, I'm not going to lie. I, I've had a, a very successful life. It had its own toll in its own way. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting that you say healthier. I say, I think on, in some ways, maybe more socially acceptable. That's what I meant. Not necessarily internally healthier, but for, for society, it seems healthier. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, if society were just a little bit different and, and being a sex worker was, I, I know this is a big jump and, but let's say that was an acceptable behavior yeah. in, in our society, then, then, and perfectionism was not, maybe it would be free. You know, I don't know. I mean, right. No, I've thought, I have thought these questions. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not the only one that, that goes down those rabbit holes of well, what if it was that way? <laughs> What if life were like that? Yeah. No, I've really explored all of that because in order to sort of heal these parts of myself, I've had to look at all the spokes and all of my questions and really reconcile how I managed. And I was a survivor. Ultimately, they, they say you're, you're, you're a trauma survivor, you're this survivor, but it's a coping. It was a coping mechanism yeah. and it served me until it no longer did. And, and you found that out in the very, I think I was reading, you were getting an award or something and you felt numb. Yeah. Was that really the turning point, that moment for it you? It was really the turning point. The pinnacle of my career, after being a performer, I went on to direct and produce. And at the sort of pinnacle place of my career, I'm on, they're announcing the Tony Award for Best Musical and I'm part of the producing team and Bernadette Peters opened the, the envelope. And it was for the show Memphis that I was involved with. And I remember that moment so clearly because it was, this is it. This is it. Is this how this is supposed to feel? This doesn't like you were waiting for it to be some big, I was waiting for the big bang. I was waiting for that feeling of, I finally made it. I did it. I'm whatever. I was waiting for that. Let me ask this. (laughs) Yeah. You might laugh at my question, but, but is it similar to, you're an adult, but there's never like this moment that says, oh, you're an adult. Like you graduate high school, you graduate college. And it's like, I'm still the same person. Like looking around, I'm still the same person I was two minutes before this happened. Is it kind of, was it kind of like that? Very similar because it was, I thought this would feel differently. I thought all my problems would be solved. Like if you just acquired that. I just got that one thing. If I just got that, then. I'd be worthy. Oh, I'm so glad you're talking about this because how many times have we thought, have I thought, right? How many times hope probably the listeners too, because if you and I think it probably most, if everybody's inside of us, 
in exactly. one aspect or another. We've all had um, some version of this. Yeah. And, and that's really when the work began, when I had to really dig in. Uh, because when all of your dreams come true and it's still not enough, now what? Right. So you finish up the award ceremony, I'm sure, and you go home. Well, there's parties first and events. Well, and, I mean, you know. <laughs> I mean, to me, that's finishing up every. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, and then it became this period of, well, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Was Who it lonely and confusing? It was lonely in the sense that everyone around me was so happy or seemingly happy, and I wasn't. And I felt a lot of shame and guilt about that as well. How come this isn't making me happy? But I didn't realize, and that and that was the beginning of that process, really. Or maybe I had done therapy work before then, and I'd been practicing yoga and meditation before then. So I had some awareness, right? This wouldn't have happened without that work, that self-awareness. But what I really, that moment was, oh, this external validation is not going to make me happy. So I really have to turn inward and figure this out and it, dig a bit deeper. You know, what you're reminding me of, though, is like Keegan's stages of development and that fourth and fifth stage that not everybody gets to. And I don't think, I think you're right. Like maybe it can't be achieved without that introspection, without that quietness. The quietness that we were talking about. Yeah. And it's why I'm such a firm believer in quietness and why I have a daily practice, which is really what precipitated that shift for me was I connected with a teacher and really began diving deep into my studies. And he gave me what is called a sadhana or a daily practice. And each day I would step onto my mat and practice some asana yoga postures, what we know as yoga in the West, some breath work, meditation, and sit and be with just myself. When you're sitting in this, is part of that teaching really just learning to listen to yeah. your internal voices? Learning to listen to the internal voices, learning to honestly be okay in whatever feeling you're in and allowing those emotions to flow through you, but not get stuck in them. Allow, allow yourself to feel and allow it to go pass through. Just like in meditation, the thought comes in. We notice the thought, but we don't attach to the thought and we let the thought go. People often think of meditation as stopping your thoughts, but it's not about stopping them. It's about pulling back a lens and seeing them for what they are and allowing them just to be, to be okay with them. Good thoughts, bad thoughts, rather than naming it, just notice them as thoughts. And it's the same with your emotions. Feel the emotion because otherwise you're stuffing it down, right? which I did for 30, however many years that was, right? Feel them and then allow them to pass. And in allowing them to pass, I'm thinking about how some of those feelings are just beyond uncomfortable to sit with, yeah. not to sit in, but to sit with, right? right? I think maybe there's a difference. There is a difference. And, and, and part of that is part of the reason why I highly suggest a therapist or a teacher or a coach or somebody to guide you through because there are times when it feels so overwhelming for instance i had repressed some of the first abuse like i knew but i didn't know all the details and through this work the details began to flood back and i remember very specifically i was in a hotel 
in Austin, Texas. And I went to take a shower, as one does. <laughs> and the, there was something about the water hitting me that I suddenly had a flashback. And that was the first time I'd had these flashbacks. And I realized it was the, the flashback was of that first abuse. I had flashes of exactly what I was wearing. And the, the reason that the shower hit it is because I went, I felt so dirty and guilty that I went home and took a long, long shower. And so that shower brought it all back. I almost passed out in the shower, but thankfully, because I had somebody I could call, right? I had a lifeline. I was able to, to get on the phone with them and they were able to talk me through breathing and talk me through being in my body and all of the things that were necessary. So having somebody that can help guide you, I think is really important as you uncover trauma. Well, and I'm thinking that's not the last time something arose in you. You needed to reach out and say, I'm struggling with. So what I, what I think I'm really getting at is that meditation is not a fix. No, it's a tool. It's a tool to help, but it's not a fix in itself. Yeah. So what would be the top three things, top tips or tools that you would recommend to anyone? I, I think anyone who's experienced trauma or struggled in any way. Number one is breath work. Number one is breath work. And the reason for that is that we take 21,600 breaths per day on average per person. It is the only thing that you need in order to live. The only thing you can go without water. You can go without food for some time. You can go without the company of people for some time. What you cannot live without is your breath. The minute the breath is expelled out of the body, you are gone. It is that powerful. And consequently, that power controls our nervous system and your trauma is stored in your nervous system ultimately. So when something, and I, not only for people with trauma, this is for anyone. When you are faced with something, if you can learn to control your nervous system, you can control your reaction. And when you can learn to control your reaction, you can learn to control your thoughts. And when you can learn to control your thoughts, you can learn to control everything. And by control, I don't mean hold on to it too tight. I mean, manipulate. And so learning the power of the breath, because when you're in an accident, what's the first thing they say to you? Breathe, right? Because you hold, we hold it, we hold it. Learning to be able to breathe through something. Instead of, I think what, what is coming up in my mind is instead of fighting against it, like yeah. when, when you're in pain, if tensing up actually makes it worse, worse. relaxing releases Correct. it. And when I said that I came out of that shower and I sat down and I breathed and I took a phone call I, to help me, the breath was the first thing. Because again, I, I was nearly passing out because I was holding my breath. And so by a, being able to have this tool of breathing through the pain, breathing through the moment, because it's really just a moment that we forget that sometimes. This too shall pass. There's a reason we say that. It's a moment, a moment in time. And being able to learn how to manage that breath, it's a life changer. So that's number one. That's the number one tool I would, I would say. And second is really to learn to watch your thoughts that mindfulness awareness piece, just by learning to notice your thoughts, they automatically begin to shift. You don't even have to do anything. Just by bringing awareness to them, they begin to shift and move. You saw me kind of chuckle quietly as you yeah. said that, because I thought of how someone said, try and figure out what your next thought is going to be. 
<laughs> and as soon as I start looking, there is nothing. Yeah, good luck. And third move, some sort of movement, because we store energy in the body. We store trauma in the body. Maybe it's dance. Maybe it's swimming. Maybe it's running. Maybe it's writing. Move your body in some form or fashion each day. And that combination of those few things will offer you a significant shift. Yeah. And I'm not saying that the trauma or the abuse ever goes away. It's layers, right? I recently had a moment where, where I was re-triggered after all these years and all the work that I've done on myself and all, I had a, a triggering moment and I realized, oh yeah, okay, that's interesting. There's still a layer there and I get to explore that now. That's how I look at it now is, oh, I get to, I get yeah, to explore that. Your first response was, oh, that's interesting. It wasn't like, oh, here it comes again. I'm in yeah. trouble. Thankfully, I've moved moved through that because I don't know that phase of, oh God, here it comes again. I'm never going to get through this. I'm never, always should, nevers, right? And, but thankfully I'm now at a place where I can look and say, oh, that's interesting. How cool that I get to look at this darker part of myself or a part of myself I haven't really wanted to look at up to this point. Yeah. Fascinating. Nick Demas, I'm so glad you came on the show. Remember, you can find him at thenickdemas.com, also on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. It's the Nick, N-I-C-K, Demas, D-E-M-O-S. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Relatively Damaged by Damaged Parents. We really enjoyed talking to Nick about how he is truly a warrior of the heart. We especially liked when he spoke of stepping through fear and what's on the other side. To unite with other damaged people, connect with us on Instagram, look for Damaged Parents. We'll be here next week, still relatively damaged. See you then.